data in the car, hopefully in your passenger seat, but data not necessarily in the driver's seat. I'm Eric Wilson, managing partner of Startup Caucus, an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. Welcome to the Business of Politics show. On this podcast, we bring you into conversation with the entrepreneurs who build best-in-class political businesses, the funders who provide the capital, and the operatives who put it all together to win campaigns. Today, we're joined by Steve Johnston, Chief Operating Officer of FlexPoint Media, We recently welcomed Keegan Baran, the co-founder of FlexPoint Media, on the show, and you can go listen to that episode to learn more about what they're working on. But Steve's got a really interesting career that has taken him from Capitol Hill and Wharton Business School to Google and Y Combinator. In our conversation today, we learn how those experiences have shaped his perspectives on both business and politics. Steve, what skills did you learn from working in politics on Capitol Hill and campaigns that gave you an edge or maybe an unfair advantage when you went to get your MBA, joined startups, and were in in sort of more traditional business spaces? Absolutely. Well, I'd say overall, less a skill and more of a mindset that I gained from politics that has helped me in business. And I think that's having a work ethic defined by scrappiness and hustle. Because I think very much that campaigns are startups of the political world, and that naturally led me to startups. And I think, in fact, uh, going back to the first startup I was a part of, that one actually was a surprise to me. It was called HotSoup.com, started in 2006, and it was started by a mix of Republican and Democratic consultants and top reporters. So basically people from the campaign world that were going into the business world. And I didn't even know I'd be working for them until I literally showed up in Washington, D.C. But I think that background in politics maybe a good fit for startups, entrepreneurial environments, I think much more so than larger, more bureaucratic corporate environments. That's interesting because I I think a lot of people don't appreciate this about campaigns is they have to be really scrappy and and lean and nimble. I mean, we we look at it, it is a multi-billion dollar per year industry, yes, but with campaigns, you're constrained by time and donation limits. So interesting that that's the takeaway. Moving efficiently, building a lean startup is one of the most important things to understand for startups. That's right. I think essentially, you know, you're trying to maximize your finite resources and with the, the campaign, as opposed to startup, you really have a clear cut deadline of, of election day, where you know at, at that point, you're either going to get 100% market share and win, or essentially go out of business. So I think that creates a lot of urgency that I think coming from the political campaign world is really helpful when you're in a startup environment, especially to have that kind of drive and, and work ethic when it comes to working really hard and trying to make the most of the resources you have available to you. So let's ask the same question, but in the other direction. How did your experiences in business and startups help you in better understanding politics? Yeah, I think overall it's using data to make better decisions because in politics, we think a lot about the inputs and the outputs of what we do. And I found in business, those things are important, but there's also much more of a connection between those metrics and also outcomes and the impact of what you're doing. And frankly, you have the luxury of more time to have more rigorous analysis, both before a decision is made and then afterwards looking back retrospectively. Um, I think in business, I've seen many good organizations have a very clear cut metric or set of metrics they focus on. And unfortunately, sometimes in politics, their metrics can be siloed in different areas. And for me, coming back into politics after having worked at startups and then joining the Dan Sullivan Senate campaign in Alaska in 2014, 
I think that experience really helped sharp my focus and helped me focus on the metrics that mattered. And then also communicate our progress through overall campaign objectives and metrics, and not just in terms of digital objectives or digital metrics. For me, it really let me get buy-in from all the departments on the campaign because I was able to show other folks in the campaign team how what I was doing with digital could supercharge their efforts for fundraising, for field communications, and otherwise. That's a really important career hack, I guess I would say, for, for people who are listening who work in campaigns, really understanding what key performance indicators exist, what are the metrics that matter to decision makers, and reporting on that is really important because I share this all the time when working with uh, operatives and campaigns is, you know, the winner isn't the person who raises the most money online or has the best open rates. It's the person who gets the most votes. And so keeping those efforts really focused and tied towards what you rightly identified as the overall campaign goals and objectives is key to getting buy-in. Absolutely. And I I think I saw you uh, tweeted the other day about in the future campaigns, organizations won't have a digital department. Everything will be digital. I think that's sort of the the challenge and opportunity for having a digital director or a digital department is it can sort of silo off digital as something else that person in the corner with the computer focuses on. An opportunity is for those digital directors to actually get out of their, their cubicle, their corner with their computer and talk to other people in the organization, figure out what their goals, what their incentives are, and figure out how what they're doing with digital can help supercharge their efforts so that digital is really infused into everything a campaign organization or congressional office or other government side organization does. Do you think there's room for art in campaigning? Because I I know that we want to make more data-driven decisions, but one criticism that I hear from other operatives, who is certainly you know, not antagonistic to innovating and digital and technology, they sort of say people get spun around the axle about data and only making decisions when they have the data or sort of overanalyzing, maybe relying on it too much. What do you think the right balance is there? Yeah, I think the key is balance. You know, data, and I think of maybe the metaphor of a car, right? Data, you need to have data in the car and, and hopefully in your passenger seat, but data not necessarily in the driver's seat. You shouldn't only be driving with data because you do have human insights, human intelligence, and there's a hugely important role for that. So I think, you know, data is something that augments what you're doing is incredibly helpful. And, you know, sometimes data may be non-quantitative in, in nature. And, and frankly, you oftentimes are working with imperfect data. You don't have enough time to get as much data as you would like, and you don't want to suffer from analysis paralysis and not act as quickly as you need to. So it's a balance between figuring out how much data is actually available to you and is actually helpful, and how much of that do you need before you can really make a decision. I think another thing that separates campaigns from business in this regard is that that campaigns are zero sum, right? So it's not like you could come in second place on election day. And, and you're also dealing with a very hostile competitive environment where you have you know, your opponent and other groups on the other side that are trying to take you down as well. And you know some industries see that more than others. But and I think you've, you've seen that sort of approach definitely come more into the corporate world as people have tried to adapt political campaign tactics to corporate and consumer brands. But it definitely creates some unique challenges in politics that you know the corporate world is not necessarily always uh, thinking of. Obviously, in politics, we've got a lot of really important legacy institutions that I think we can both agree have so much untapped potential. I'm thinking about Congress. I'm thinking about the executive branch. Uh, I'm thinking about local government. What are some of the ways that someone can be entrepreneurial 
in organizations like that, that are bigger, that have been around for a long time without necessarily wearing that founder label? Well, I think you raise a really important point and that's, you don't have to be a founder to be entrepreneurial. And that was something that was emphasized um, for me when I was at business school. They oftentimes talked about different paths of entrepreneurship, that you certainly could be a founder, but you could also work at a startup or you could even work at a startup within a larger organization, the so-called entrepreneurship. But I think there's really a fourth opportunity as well, and that's just bringing an entrepreneurial mindset to your job and trying to find newer, better, maybe faster ways of doing things. Um, For me, working in Congress, I had the good fortune of doing digital work for Eric Cantor, who really leaned into digital innovation technology while uh, he was in Congress. And I oftentimes describe our team, our department, as almost being like a startup within a congressional leadership office. Because during my time working for him, we launched the first smartphone app on Capitol Hill. And we also launched a program called UCUT, which was an online and SMS voting program so that citizens could have a say in what bills were brought to the House floor. Um, but these are initiatives, you know, brought about by our leadership office. But, you know, you could bring about certain initiatives on a different scale with the committee or even on the office level. And in fact, I did just that for Leader Cannon's personal office. Every year there's, there's the congressional art competition. And I actually learned JavaScript and built an app on our website so people could vote online for their favorite art entries and share their choice on social media. So that was a very tangible example of something we could do on a much smaller scale. That's something that you could do in a House or Senate office or Say if you're part of one of the departments in the executive branch, you do something like that uh, as well. Yeah. And I think it has gotten much easier over the years to be entrepreneurial in those offices. I remember that, you know, we were both in Capitol Hill at the same time and uh, I got in trouble with the house IT department for using Skype. Right. So it's, it's, it's come a long ways. Well, and I think also we were fortunate in that time um, to be part of a group of people that were, you know, coming up and it's the, you know, the so-called new media ninjas or whatever the, the moniker was for us back then. There was a, a group of us all at the same time trying to figure out how could we take digital tools that have been leveraged so effectively by the Obama campaign in 2008 and how to bring those into Congress to help us communicate more effectively with our constituents. So it was extremely helpful to have folks like yourself and other folks across all different offices and, and committees. We were all kind of able to collaborate outside of our office silos and figure out how can we also work together as a team to use these new tools and figure out how to make Congress work more effectively through this entrepreneurial mindset. Right. And, it, and and I think that the important part was that no one else was paying attention to it. You know, we didn't need permission to go do this stuff because no one was paying attention to it. And I think that is a huge welcome sign for anyone who wants to break out, be an innovator, become an entrepreneur in, in these sorts of organizations, if you see uh, an opportunity that no one else is paying attention to, that's a really good place to go start looking. Absolutely. And I I found that similarly, before I came to Capitol Hill in 2008, I was working for the McCain campaign's advertising team, and I was allowed to manage the YouTube channel. (laughs) I can't imagine a college senior getting the keys to a presidential campaign, a nominee's YouTube channel, and getting to run with that. But for me at that time, it was given sort of less importance than it is now, and it allowed me kind of the the blue ocean to explore and figure out, well, how can we get more views? How can we track the analytics and how we're getting more views and really try to supercharge what we're doing? And to your point, it was something that, you know, other people weren't necessarily prioritizing or as, as aware of, but for me, that gave me opportunity to really explore and to be entrepreneurial in a way that um, I might not have otherwise. Steve, I think our listeners have probably picked up by now that in your career, you've transitioned back and forth between politics, you know, from <laughs> Capitol Hill to Wharton, uh, Senate campaign, then Google, and now 
back to politics slash uh, business. What are what are some of the practical things that you do or systems you have in place to maintain your professional network in both worlds? In terms of tools I use in politics, I really use Twitter. I mean, that's such a great place to figure out what's going on in the industry uh, and follow industry news. There's so many consultants that are active on it, so many reporters that are active on it. On the business side, and I think of you know the Y Combinator world especially, uh, there's also this, this thing called Bookface, which is YC's social network. Um, and I also recently joined an organization called the Orange DAO, which is a DAO of YC alumni that communicate often over Discord and through one of the new Twitter communities. And it can be a bit overwhelming in terms of how much uh, there is going on, how many YC companies there are nowadays versus when I did YC. And then with Orange DAO, how much activity there is on the, the Discord. But it's fun to drop in and follow the action here and there in my, my free time. But I'd say practically speaking, in either world, something that I've really tried to do practically is to reach out to people when I see or hear or hear something that may be of value to them and not just reach out to people when I want something. I think that's a really good application of balancing what Professor Adam Grant at Wharton refers to as give and take to make sure I'm balancing the two and not just always trying to take things from other people and trying to give things of value back to them. That's just great advice for, for life in general too. You're listening to the Business of Politics show. I'm speaking with Steve Johnston, COO of FlexPoint Media. I want to spend some time now talking about GovPredict, which is a startup you founded back in 2014, and it was backed by Y Combinator. It was acquired last year by Phone to Action. I'm curious to hear from you, what was the most important transferable lesson that you learned from that particular startup experience? So for me, the really important lessons are that the universe wants you to succeed and the importance of gratitude. And I'd say on, on the former, I don't mean that there's a guarantee you will succeed. I just mean that there are more people out there rooting for your success than you realize. You're really not alone in your journey. So when I think back to, to GovPredict, GovPredict was an idea I thought of when I was a staffer on Capitol Hill. I didn't start it up until I was in business school. And I think of all the people at Wharton that helped me or encouraged me. That was my classmates, professors, alumni, other people in the Wharton community, and then going into Y Combinator where they invested in us. I think about all of the partners at YC, my batchmates, the alumni I met through being in YC, other people in that community. And then uh, once I came to Washington with, with GovPredict, all the people in Washington who I knew or who I met in the process of pitching it, who were generous with their time and their feedback and introductions, and all the people who celebrated it when the company was acquired. And I think, you know, for me, observing all the kindness throughout that whole process, it's just really overwhelming. I think to me, it's a lesson in terms of uh, how important gratitude is. So I try to pay that forward to others and also to express gratitude to people who are helpful in my life. So you've mentioned Y Combinator a few times and 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 you participated in that program. It's, you know, for, for our listeners who might not be familiar with it, it is the archetype for startup accelerators and has an absolutely amazing track record of identifying up and coming companies. Just think about any startup that you've heard of in the last decade, and it's a good chance that it's gone through Y Combinator. At this point, they've, they've pretty much open sourced all of their content and programming. You can go read all of their documents, all of their talks. I'm curious to hear from you, having actually been in it, what, what is the, the value of participating in an experience like that? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, there's the investment. And as they say, cash is king. So when I did Y Combinator, they invested $120,000 for 7% of your company. Uh, now their investment is more to the tune of $500,000. 
Um, the people who work at YC are incredible. And so, you know, when I was going through YC, I was getting advice from people who built things like Reddit, Twitch, and Gmail, and really uh, other high profile products. On demo day, when you get on stage, you're pitching the best investors in the world. And there's a really uh, powerful signaling value of being a part of YC that's helpful for fundraising. But I think increasingly, you know, the ultimate value is through the network of other founders. And that's people in your batch, people from previous batches and future batches as well. Um, Because for me, the YC community has been incredibly kind and generous and creative in terms of people that I've, I've met. And I think it's really important as a founder to have that because it makes the experience of being a founder, which can be very isolating, can be very lonely. Um, you just feel so much more supportive when you're going through the process together. And you know, I think back to the weekly meetings I had uh, with my, my batch mates and folks, my, my group, my group partners. It was sort of like a group therapy session to hear about their <laughs> problems and challenges and to know that you're, you're really not alone in the, the struggle that it is you know, building a startup. I think later on, I lived in L.A. for two years. And I moved out there without a community. And I really found a community among other YC founders who were also in town. I made, made great friendships with other founders. And in fact, later this year, I'm headed back to California for the wedding of a YC founder I met while in LA. And I recently connected with a group of DC-based YC founders. So for me, it's truly a great network of really extraordinary people. And I think that's a, another important lesson uh, for those who are kind of following Startup Caucus's progress, right? We obviously... You know, it's not enough just to, you know, invest money uh, in startups. There, there is this this value of of community and the the network effect, and and there's something intangible that really good startup ecosystem programs can create, where there are these sort of network effects and um, build that community. As we know, exits, which are getting the company you founded, acquired or sold, are still pretty rare in the political space. You're one of the few who have done that. And you're also an investor in more startups. Give us a sense of what the landscape looks like for that market in the political sector. Do you see that growing over the next few years of of more, more transactions well, I feel like I should be asking this question of you rather than you of me. I think you're almost uh, you're way more of an expert than than I am. I should say, congrats on raising your recent fund <laughs> of 500k because that's that's no easy feat at all to raise that much money. But I'd say, from my perspective, I think that you're right. The left tends to be ahead. I think the right is quickly growing. Um, I think exits can be tricky unless you can pivot from politics to a, a wider market of public affairs and like the corporate space. And, you know, my experience with GovPredict and otherwise is that a lot of investors are a little bit leery of, of politics, especially given how partisan the technology can be in, in, in that sector. Um, and it's tricky because of the way that your market essentially evaporates every two years and you have to start anew in, in terms of the customer development side of things. But I do think you know, there is opportunity there, especially if companies can go bigger than just politics, especially if they can, uh, you know, focus on things beyond just the partisan side of things. I used to say with with GovPredict, when they sort of asked us why Combinator, if we were just going to sell to one side or the other, I was ready with a, with a canned response that I'd kind of plagiarized from Senator McCain. And I said, you know, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, or Vegetarian, we want to sell to you. <laughs> so I made clear to them that we had a really big market. And it wasn't just one side or the other um, in our case. Um, I think there's also an opportunity for startups. If you say you want to bootstrap and maybe build a nice business that generates distributions rather than being acquired or going public. So I think it's also important to consider alternative paths to VC uh, and the IPO model we hear so much about and that's glamorized. Um, But it's really important also that there is an ecosystem growing on the right for 
um, for startups as well, which is why I think Startup Caucus plays a really important um, role in the political tech sector. Well, it certainly is our bet that we're going to see more market activity and, and you hit the nail on the head. It's unlikely that companies are going to be ringing the bell on uh, the NASDAQ or, or or the New York Stock Exchange, although I'm not opposed to that. Um, but but far more likely that you build, you know, really good businesses that, that cash flow. Uh, a few things that I think you raise up that I that I want to react to. The first is. You know, yes, it is um, cyclical in, in nature, but the the other side of that coin is political business are recession proof, right? There, you have to have elections mm-hmm. every two years, uh, or if you live in a state yeah. like Virginia, every single year. Um, so it is it is kind of tricky from a cash flow management perspective and and the up and down. And then I just think about. I mean, we deal with this all the time. Once campaigners get set in their ways about something, it's very hard to change their mind. So, you know, for whatever reason, the, you know, a thousand points of TV a week is what we need to drive a message is, is kind of the North Star for a lot of campaigns. And if we can get really good technology and good software, part of the culture as, as firmly planted as that is, I think that's a that's a huge win. I, I think the other thing that's that's really interesting is the technology and the playbooks for building these kinds of businesses are, are much more accessible. And then the last thing I'll say is, is something that you're already involved in, which is blockchain and, and Web3. I, I think that's going to make it much easier for companies to be liquid, raise capital, grow and expand, and even get into other sectors beyond just politics. I think that's right. I think you make really good points on all, all three fronts. And you know, the first front, especially being recession proof, I mean, that's something we found at, at FlexPoint, you know, and at, during the pandemic, when other businesses, industries were having to, to lay off people, we were actually busier than ever. We were hiring people. We were hiring people remote and we didn't, you know, meet them in person until months after they started working for us. So, you know, we were very fortunate in that regard that there was a lot of activity and, you know, maybe even more political ad spending in 2020 than there might have been otherwise. All right, Steve, now that you've made the leap into becoming an angel investor yourself, what are some of the startups you'd like to see in the political space that you're ready to write a check in today? Well, I'm going to take a slightly different approach because I don't specifically invest in political startups. I'm not opposed to it, but it's not necessarily what I what I seek out. But I was actually speaking with someone about this sort of question yesterday. Of what are the problems that really exist in politics? I think that's if you're a founder or a potential founder, it's really important that you do kind of as YC suggests, which is make something people want. And you do that by focusing on problems and then trying to build a solution around that. It seems to me that a lot of startups could help people uh, perform tasks more quickly. That They provide a lot of value in that way. And that's in politics and really in all industries. And I think about in politics, it takes you know so much time to produce content. Uh, when it comes to political communications, my sense from talking with friends in the oppo research world is that creating an oppo book and monitoring candidates going forward that also takes a lot of time. So I think both content production and oppo research, um, you know, they require human insight to be really successful. And I'm not sure that AI technology is really there yet to replace humans. And I think if it was, unfortunately, a lot of my friends might need to find new careers. But I think there's opportunity to augment human insight, which is really critical with technology, with things like AI to help uh, these tasks be more automated or run faster. 
So if some startups out there are finding a way to do that, then that's something I definitely would want to hear about and be interested in. My thanks to Steve for joining us today. You can keep up with him on Twitter at Stephen E. Johnston. Remember to subscribe to the Business of Politics show wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode with a friend or colleague if it made you just a little bit smarter. We'll see you next time.